Welcome to the Serverless Economics Podcast, where we talk about how your company can leverage serverless to optimize operational expenses. I'm Josh Proto, joined by Ryan Jones, and we are part of the leadership team at Serverless Guru, a cloud consulting company specializing in reducing operational expenses with serverless. Today, we're going to be diving into a case study about how the Seattle Times reduced image hosting costs and better established their position as a leading news provider by moving to a serverless architecture. Now, if you're short on time today, you can download the episode outline in the podcast description. So here's a brief summary of this case study from the AWS website. The Seattle Times was founded in 1896 and is a family-owned news media business serving the Pacific Northwest. The Seattle Times is a winner of 10 Pulitzer Prizes, journalism's highest honor, and two prestigious online journalism awards for its digital news coverage. SeattleTimes.com attracts nearly 7 million unique visitors a month, making it the biggest digital network in the region. Their print edition is the second largest newspaper on the West Coast, setting the news agenda for the region, and they have maintained on-premises hardware and custom publishing software for nearly two decades. Knowing this, they evaluated the cost of acquiring and configuring new hardware infrastructure, including the staff to maintain it, and decided to transition towards a fully managed hosting vendor. However, the Seattle Times quickly became frustrated after making this decision, as the software engineering team found that although they had less operational overhead, they had little to no flexibility in their development because of their new partner. As their website traffic began flowing into their new hosting solution, they quickly found that the hosted platform couldn't handle the traffic load at various points throughout the day, and the customer experience would fluctuate dramatically, leaving their customers frustrated. Now, according to the software engineering manager, Tom Bain, we had a fairly standard architecture in mind when we set out to do the migration, and we encouraged our vendor to adapt to our needs, but they struggled with the idea of altering their own business model to satisfy our very unique hosting needs. The Seattle Times then spent time evaluating alternatives and came to the conclusion that AWS fit their needs the best. They invested time up front building a proof of concept and validating it with the AWS support team versus jumping straight into AWS in order to ensure that they didn't make the same mistakes as before and that the new architecture would fully work and give them the flexibility they desire. After they got validation from the AWS support team, they then made the switch to the new architecture, and Seattle Times was able to deploy their new system in only six hours, just in time for the next news day. The Seattle Times used a combination of EC2, CloudFront, and S3 services to host their website. They used EC2 and Lambda for business logic, and they used RDS for hosting their database. Now, by making the switch to AWS, they were able to scale up to user demand. Users no longer had to deal with long service outages, and the software engineering team took back control, giving them the freedom to focus on building what their users needed versus dealing with the limitations of their previous implementation. Wow, you know, I think my major takeaway from this Seattle Times case study is that it shows how the user of your application or your end customer's experience will drive the success of any infrastructure changes a company implements. You know, in this case, it was because Seattle Times users had fluctuating demand patterns that the initial relationship with the fully managed hosting provider didn't work out. And although Seattle Times was able to initially cut costs with their provider, uh, which from an operations standpoint is moving the needle significantly, it provided a poor customer experience, which cost them customers. Serverless and cloud services, though, proved to be a better solution since they could scale up automatically and provide a more positive customer experience. 
Ryan, what were your takeaways? So I think that a, a really good, really good point in all of this was uh, that you know initially, Seattle Times was running on-premises servers. Uh, they had really high traffic, the very big, important newspaper on the West Coast. Uh, you know they've been around for a long time, and they transitioned to using uh, technology to enhance their business. And then gradually, they've had to kind of naturally elevate it to the next level. So moving it from on-premises to then trying to move it to the cloud. And they had a decision point uh, to either continue using on-premises or switch to a fully managed provider uh, or run their own stuff on the cloud. And sometimes for companies, you know, that can be a very big jump to move from on-premises without any cloud experience to then running your own stuff on the cloud. Um, although the the barrier of entry, as uh, CL Times eventually learned, uh, was actually worth the investment uh, due to the lack of flexibility. So I think that that's a really good point that, uh, you know, initially they chose to take the fully managed approach and uh, use this hosted provider to host the website and manage this stuff for them. But because they were kind of putting themselves into this box, they had to deal with the consequences of what that box was able to provide. And I can see both arguments. I can see Seattle Times argument of, you know, hey, why are you not adjusting to our needs? And I can see the other argument for the actual hosting provider, which is like, you know, we have a thousand customers and, you know, you made Seattle Times maybe one customer out of a thousand customers. And so it's harder for them maybe to change their entire business model uh, to fit what the Seattle Times needs. So I can understand like where both companies are going for, but uh, I think the decision to finally move away from that uh, fully managed provider uh, ended up being, you know, the best decision uh, for them. And uh, as they said, is like once they actually made that transition, they were able to put it into production. Uh, I think you mentioned that it was six hours, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a pretty fast turnaround time. And, you know, the approach of, of building out a proof of concept first and having that validated by people that have been working in the space for a long time. Uh, some companies will use outside consultants, so maybe like serverless consultants if it's doing serverless architecture. Uh, in their case, they use the AWS team to actually validate it. And then from there, they're actually able to get that check mark, uh, feel really confident about it, and then actually roll it out to their their end users and they stopped having uh, outages. So I think it's I think it's a really good example of a company that's been around for you know a hundred plus years trying to stay competitive and provide a good user experience. And what that transition looks like. Mm -hmm. And now, now you say, you know, it seems like according to what you said that, you know, this was a good decision, though, although I'm really interested, you know, long term, because when you move away from a fully hosted platform, you're now taking on all the responsibility to manage your entire system overhead, you know, which can really be great if you have that in house expertise, or at least can commit those resources to mastering this new system. And, you know, I've just seen teams create a host of downstream problems with not provisioning sort of the downstream costs and the downstream expertise that are going to be needed. So do you think overall this decision is good for the Seattle Times? Or what what would they need to do? What will they now need to do in order to make this the best decision? Yeah, so it's it's kind of, um, it depends on <laughs> at what period they wrote this case study. Uh, I think that naturally what ends up happening, and you know we've seen this happen when we write case studies or we write about a current point in our, our iteration process is you can easily get a snapshot and then you can, you know, maybe Seattle Times made this transition and it's now one year later and they would have a, a much different perspective on the benefits and the 
the cost analysis handoff and all these things. Uh, my, my opinion on it is that I think that if you have the internal team, if you have an in-house team, if your needs are more complex than what the hosted provider could handle, then building out that internal expertise uh, inside of Seattle Times would probably be the best approach. Uh, strictly because then at that point, they then have the ability to move a lot faster and, you know, they can be, as I said, more flexible. So, you know, I, I have a quote that I like, which is, uh, this was from my mentor when I first started programming and developing that said, uh, well, there's two of them. The, what the first one was the best code is the code you don't write. And so what I really like about that, and this is counter, this is, this is a counter somewhat to Seattle Times, but, uh, you know, for Seattle Times, they basically went from the, okay, you handle everything. I'm just going to give you the code or I'm just going to give you a design to now they have to manage the infrastructure, the servers, the scaling, the logging, the monitoring, making sure that if a server fails, that they can recover it. What, who does that? What skill is that? Is that an operations team? Is it a tech ops team? Is that DevOps? Like, so I think that what the Seattle Times ended up doing is they, move to a new provider, but also at the same time, they then had to build out entire new departments and hire completely different staff. And there was probably a really big skill gap to make all this stuff happen. So um, I think that, you know, downstream, the, there's a lot of benefits of doing that. But at least that initial cost, it was probably at a certain point, you know, it's very easy to build a proof of concept uh, to actually move that proof of concept to production and actually uh, expand it. Uh, that's where you can easily get into get into trouble. And I think your quote that checks out for the Seattle Times because you know they didn't have to write the code that enables like EC2 and Lambda and everything to work. They're just sort of using this system. They're not having to manage all that, which they used to with their on-premises solutions. So even though they still have code of theirs that they are writing, it's probably not at the same scale that they're used to having to manage. So it's sort of a net net win there. <clears throat> That's a really good point. Yeah. So the, the, if you think about it in the full transition process, you know, they started with on-premises. They then gave up the infrastructure and having to actually buy the equipment and maintain it, uh, have a place to store it, make sure there's constant power, all these things, uh, upgrade it if something fails, have a repair person on staff or available to then moving to the hosted provider, which then was like a pure, like, you know, maybe 90% of their responsibility was offloaded. Uh, to then moving to, you know, EC2 and AWS. And at that point, it's still, you know, 60-70% of the infrastructure and the management of it actually offloaded. It could even be higher than that. It could be 80% mm -hmm. of their responsibility. So that's a really valid point. And so I think that also brings up a point of, you know, in this case study, Seattle Times made the critical decision of moving away from their fully managed hosting provider. You know, they broke that relationship. Um, have you seen other companies do that? Is this sort of a larger writing on the wall for all these fully managed hosting providers that they need to be looking out for uh, these cloud service providers like AWS or GCP, Azure, Alibaba, Tencent? Uh, is the writing on the wall for them? Yeah. So I think that any time that, you know, that what, what probably was the decision initially with the engineering team at Seattle Times is they, they went, hey, we want to move away, we want to upgrade our website, we want to make this more modern. They evaluated a few options and then they saw, oh, hey, we can just get started with this this uh, fully managed provider, jump in, throw up our website really quickly, and then we'll have you know some backend code. We don't really need it. It's just a form. And then what they ended up realizing is that actually, um, when you get into edge cases with a fully managed provider, 
that can get super complex. And so, yeah, so we've seen that uh, actually happen quite a bit. Um, we've had a client that we did a lot of work with where we actually helped them move from a fully managed provider, uh, which which allowed them to have the servers, all these things, but they couldn't actually, they didn't have zero downtime. So they would have scheduled windows of time where uh, maintenance would take place, but it wasn't their maintenance. It was actually the fully managed provider's uh, maintenance. And so that would actually take down their entire website. And the problem with it is that, you know, our client was working with the Canadian government and they they basically had some things inside of the different contracts with uh, government agencies and all this stuff where they couldn't have this this type of downtime. So although it was the best approach for a very small team, um, they ended up uh, regretting it quite a lot because they invested a fair amount of money into making this work and trying to get it to work and working with the managed provider to cut down these uh, these windows of time where their website would just be offline for three hours. And uh, as a result of that, they contacted us. They were like, hey, uh, serverless guru, we need you to help us move our stuff to AWS, do the automation we want. And then what was nice in that entire process, and this is different than Seattle Times potentially, is that with our client, you know, they were they were a small team. So they were like, hey, there's, there's all these skills that we have to learn. We don't want to do that. We want we just wanted to make it work and we want it to be stable and we want it to be best practices. And so we're just going to pay you to do it. Uh, you can understand our context. Here's our application code. Here's our GitHub repositories. This is context about how our stuff was set up. But a big thing is that when you actually make the transition to AWS, it's less important about what the specific services were called on that that provider that you're using before and more about what the functionality is. So once we identify that they're running, you know, Ruby application servers, uh, they need like load balancing. Uh, they have these requirements for downtime. They need to make sure that they have backups for their databases. We then mapped all those services over to AWS services. And then we wrote out all the automation and the infrastructure as code to then create these automatically. So then once we actually handed it off, you know, it's now been three or four months later since we actually finished that, uh, that move to for their production website. And, you know, and we're talking like, uh, it's like a three tier app. So we're talking the database. Uh, migration, the backend migration, uh, and the frontend migration, uh, a whole bunch of other supporting services for caching, um, uh, asset storage with uh, AWS S3, Route 53 for their domain, uh, CloudFront for their CDN, and uh, you know, and there's other services there. Uh, we did those too, and so um, I think that's a really important note: is that if you want to make this switch, you can almost get that a similar experience of kind of offloading the expertise. You just have to find a really good consulting company to help you make that move, somebody that you can trust. Um, and if you have that established or if AWS can fill that role or if an outside uh, agency like us uh, can do that, it can end up saving, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars uh, plus in this transition. And as I said, we're now four months after it and we haven't had a single uh, support case come through. So after we actually built their infrastructure, deployed it, transitioned it, and it's now being supported uh, daily and actually running daily. Uh, without any issues for the past three or four months. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's a super successful move. And that seems like a incredible accomplishment to be able to, you know, create a system that then does not have any problems and is continually able to either, you know, meet the use case that it was designed for and or just be able to be maintained by their in-house team. Uh, that's really incredible. Uh, so it seems like, you know, with your experience when, uh, you know, in the case study, you know, they say, you know, our relationship with this partner really prevented us from being as 
quote-unquote flexible as we wanted. It seems like you really have a good understanding, Ryan, of you know what that flexibility really means in practice. If uh, there's scheduled maintenance that's happening that takes down your website and none of your stuff is actually getting repaired, that's uh, that's a huge blow to your flexibility because it just shuts everything down. And have to work around that, that just is causing problems in that relationship. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and one thing that I would want to add to that is, you know, from the perspective of the client, you know, once we actually handed them this, they don't have the in-house experience. Uh, you know, how do we actually make this handoff happen, right? And I think a, a really good thing to note is for the team that's there, they don't have dedicated people at their company for, uh, you know, for DevOps uh, or for uh, cloud development. And so they, they relied on, on serverless guru to do that. And what we built for them was, uh, you know, as I said, an elaborate amount of infrastructure as code and automation. But we also created CICD pipelines hooked into their uh, re- repositories for their code. So now the developers that are there that don't have cloud development experience, all they have to do is actually just modify their code, merge it to master, have a pull request, have it reviewed. And then once it's reviewed and it's merged in, it'll actually kick off a, a build process that then actually runs a, a whole series of automation scripts to then actually push that over to AWS. And, and from there, our automation takes care of everything. And so what's really nice is that they've been pushing code constantly for the past three months, and it's been automatically running our, our automation. And we had like 100% automation in, in the entire system that we built. And I think that that's really a testament to like, it's really crazy to think about actually, because they don't actually have a dedicated cloud development person there. And the stuff that we built has been running actively and they've been pushing updates constantly and there's been no interruption of service. So yeah, we had strategies around how to actually update the application code. Um, I believe that we had uh, what's called rolling updates uh, configured. So as code gets pushed, it'll actually uh, spin up a new server that actually that code will get put to first. And then as the connections drain off the additional servers, uh, it'll then make that new code the primary code. And uh, and then we gave the client a whole bunch of different documentation and videos about how to actually get into the servers, uh, understand what's going on, look at the logging. Uh, and what's really nice about AWS in this scenario is that they have so many integrated services for monitoring and logging and getting insight into what's going on with your application that it was really easy for us to kind of give this high-level training. But then whenever there's requests for like, hey, we need to update the infrastructure as code or uh, we had one scenario where they actually wanted to reduce the cost by getting rid of a uh, NAT gateway. And so, um, and that's, you know, won't get into what that is, but, you know, it's a service on AWS and it was costing them about an extra like $100 a month and wasn't totally required for their implementation. And so we had to change a couple of, uh, you know, I'll treat it as like a, of dials. We had to turn a couple of dials, press a couple buttons in our infrastructure as code, re-push it back up to AWS. And that was it. And so for us, it was very low touch. Uh, probably the change was less than 30 minutes. And that's that's been the only modification. And that was more of an optimization for cost rather than, hey, something's wrong with the implementation that we built. So Ryan, I can't imagine that either your experience with clients or really even the developer's experience in this case study, they just sort of wake up one day and they're like, ah, oh, I know how the serverless architecture should all fit together. I imagine there has to be, you know, some sort of research process behind what services should I be using um, if my main goal is to lower operational expenses while still creating 
uh, memorable and positive customer experience. Um, these are the things I need to meet. These are the metrics I need to hit. Maybe open up a door into like, what does this research process look like? Is it research intensive? Uh, is there a danger of getting lost in the weeds of all the information you can sort of feed yourself up with? I'm interested to hear a little bit from you. Yeah, it's a great question. So that's a that's a big problem when when we talk about you know serverless specifically and uh, less to Seattle Times they have a they have a factor in their stuff around serverless that definitely is a really big role um, which we'll probably get into in a second. But the one thing with serverless is they've actually started you know using a different term sometimes which is serviceful and that's because as you use fully managed services. You can move a lot faster, and so as a result, you end up using a lot more fully managed services. And then, as you use more fully managed services, and you move even faster, then you add more of them. And so, exponentially over time, you're now dealing with a lot of different services. And that's just to say, somebody has to understand what's going on, right? So, as you increase the number of services that you're using, the skill gap increases uh, as well. And so, you know, to go back to the idea of like, where do you even start with this? Um, I would say that. You know, a quote that I we, we might have used it even in the last episode was uh, it was from Joe Emerson who said, uh, you know, spend with serverless, and this is with cloud development in general. Uh, should probably be with development in general. Um, spend two weeks researching and two days developing, not two weeks developing and two days researching. Not and completely, why that's so huge, as you can imagine, is that uh, if you spend those two weeks researching, that allowed them to evaluate serverless completely, evaluate the hosted provider, evaluate AWS, Google Cloud, and Azure, evaluate other hosted providers. I mean, eight hours a day dedicated of like one person, if you have two people and you're a bigger company, even better, better results. But, you know, it's like, take these two people, tell them what we need to do, right? Like, what is the vision of this? And then allow them to go out and actually start researching all the various options create a report, create a whole uh, information deck around it, and then come back and then let them go back and forth, find the best solution from there. And then when you actually go to implement, everything's already lined up. You know, that's going to hit every single checkbox that you have. And I feel like a lot of times when people make these migrations, um, you know, Seattle Times can be a good example of, you know, kind of jumping the gun a little bit. Uh, we saw this with Alameda County in the last episode of Serverless Economics podcast, where they, uh, back in 2014, they had on-premises servers. They built out this application for the election system, and then it crashed on the election night. And so, you know, if they would have looked at the different cases that they had, or if our client before that we worked with would have looked at the service outages that take place, they would have realized that that was actually something that they couldn't uh, support, and they would have went a different direction uh, from the beginning. And so, and because you because that didn't happen, you can imagine multiple months of development and time and energy. And people working on this to actually build that solution that eventually you threw away just to, to a large degree. You know, there's that time old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, you know, that's wisdom for the ages. And it, you know, makes sense in medicine and farming as much as it does in serverless development. So, Ryan, a point that you brought up that, you know, even beyond doing research of which services I should be using or what providers exist, um, even the decision to use AWS as their uh, service provider rather than Google Cloud or Azure or Alibaba or something like that, that must take a considerable amount of time. Uh, why do you think they chose AWS? Is it just because, you know, 
when you think of serverless and cloud, you sort of think of Amazon because they're everywhere. Or do they do they have some sort of competitive advantage that is more appealing to someone like the Seattle Times than compared to someone else? Yeah, great question. So the Seattle Times, just a you know one part of that one part of that equation. Um, you know, when you're building an application and you're looking at cloud providers, uh, I'm sure Google Cloud and Azure probably have something similar. But I know uh, for certain that AWS actually has. A, a main um, a main region of support here in uh, like the Portland area uh, on the west coast, and so it's very close to Seattle. Um, and so, what why that's important is that they have the ability to use AWS and use that specific region for hosting uh, their newspaper website. And with that, they're going to have lower latency. They're going to have more support. It's actually a main region of AWS. So when when AWS rolls out new services. They're going to be able to roll them out to this specific region on the West Coast. And uh, whereas if you were in middle America or you're somewhere else, maybe in the south of America, you might not get that uh, those new services as quickly, which means that you would have to use the West Coast region, even though you're in the south. Uh, and then you're going to have to every every user, let's say, let's in Texas, may have to use uh, US, uh, the West Coast uh, region or the East Coast region. And they're going to have some travel time for their users. Um, so there's there's different ways to get around that, but I think at that core level, uh, that's one that's one reason to evaluate AWS on that front, and then use that to compare it against Google Cloud and Azure to see where are where is the region where your application is actually going to be hosted, and is there going to be latency impacts, and what does that look like? Um, typically, it's not going to make the biggest uh, the biggest deal, but that'd be the one point. Another point would be to look at what your application actually is, right? And so when you think about moving to the cloud, when you think about serverless, what you should do is you should practice throwing away everything that you know about software development and about technology and just let let, let that go. Um, there's a lot of traditional development that's done where, you know, the question will be, well, where do we put, you know, in serverless, for instance, when you don't have control of the server itself, the question will often come up where it's like, where do I put my monitoring agent? Where do I put my security agent? Where do I install this thing onto the server? And it's like, well, you don't. You don't control the server anymore. That's not your job. Like that, you've handed that responsibility over to AWS. There's no longer some person on your team that's doing the operations for this part of your application. That job role transitions to something else. You focus more on your product. You iterate faster. But when it comes to that specific point, um, you're not going to be controlling that aspect anymore. So. I would look at, if you're looking at serverless, definitely evaluate the maturity of the products for Google Cloud and Azure uh, or Tencent Cloud or Alibaba, whatever you're looking at, and make sure that, that you know, the same thing with, are there service outages with that hosted provider? Make sure that whatever your customers need and whatever your business requirements are, that it's getting those checked off. And then also look at how long they've been around. So for AWS specifically, I would always recommend AWS for serverless specifically because they've been using, you know, AWS Lambda came out in 2014. I think Google Cloud and Azure, I think I want to say Azure, they had a solution for like uh, what's called a cloud function around 2016. And then I want to say that Google Cloud was uh, after that even. So uh, AWS has been way above the curve on all the cloud providers. They've been iterating for the past five years, six years on this. And so their product offering is really solid. There's huge widespread support. There's lots of documentation. Anything that you've done before, somebody else has already done it. So if you're on Google Cloud and I asked you to build these APIs, build this integration, 
at some point, you're going to be like, oh, wow, the documentation for Google Cloud is amazing. But then the second that you step outside of that, of like what they're showing you how to do, and you have to then figure it out. You know, I've been, I've struggled with Google Cloud before strictly because not being able to find the, this, this like body of knowledge outside of their traditional documentation. So you end up getting lost a little bit and you're kind of out in the wilderness by yourself. Um, for Azure specifically, I know they're a very big competitor in the serverless space. Uh, and a lot of people in Europe and things like that use it. And so this is where it comes to another layer. Um, so first, you know, we evaluated uh, the checklist of things that your application supports, uh, the type of services and the maturity of the products that your development team can actually use it. And that's why I think that AWS is probably the best solution when you're thinking about serverless and you think about actually making this move. They have a ton of fully managed services. They have the best integrations currently. The documentation is great and they have support across the world where, you know, if you're building an application on the East Coast or the West Coast or in, uh, you know, in, in Singapore or in Europe, you're going to actually be able to have that fast latency. And uh, yeah, and that's 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 pretty much my opinion, Josh. Fantastic. So this is sort of wrap up what you said. So there's sort of a, a geographic component people should be thinking of. Do these service providers have a location that's close to me in order to reduce latency? There is a number of users sort of component, which also takes into account, well, how long have these service providers been in business? Uh, is there not only a large dedicated team behind those service providers, but also a dedicated amount of users who are sort of, you know, releasing their own solutions into the internet nexus in order for people to draw from? I've seen that be probably one of the most critical things as far as um, how fast to ship solutions out that actually are driving business results. If you're using a more established service, someone's probably done it before. And so you can really just, you know, use that code that's not yours, but's been tested case by case over and over again. So very good points, Ryan. Now, something else that happened in the case study I need to ask you about is Seattle Times talks about how they had a really good experience with AWS support. And I'm wondering what sort of experience you've had or you've seen companies have had with AWS support because from my experience, you know, that just may be a case of Seattle Times being so large. Um, from what I've seen, AWS support really only gives you top tier service if you are, you know, sort of hitting at a certain level. But maybe that's not always the case. Um, maybe if you are a smaller company than Seattle Times, how would you suggest approaching uh, support from AWS? Yeah, great question. So this is uh, this is very common. This is a very common problem. Uh, this kind of gets into once you move to this new architecture and you start realizing, oh, actually, this proof of concept uh, tutorial that I followed is, yeah, it, it works and I can press the button and it deploys. But then what is this thousand line file of JSON or YAML? And how does that fit into any of this stuff? What are all these terms that are being thrown around? And it can end up being immediately this rabbit hole of, you know, 10 different services that you have to go down. Um, and so I think that, you know, you got to define AWS support of like, what does that actually offer? And, you know, from my experience, AWS support offers the ability to point you to different documentation really easily. So they actually understand their product really well, as you can imagine. So if you run into something or you need a, you need a, a direction about like, can I do this thing with, this database service, uh, can I store images on XYZ? They're really good at being able to answer simple questions like that. When you move into uh, more complex questions, 
such as, hey, I'm trying to do XYZ with this thing and this thing, and I'm trying to connect them and it's not working because of this error code. That's where you're going to get into kind of a hard, a hard place with AWS support, uh, strictly because, you know, you can imagine that if you're AWS support and you're answering all these different messages, uh, a question like that could easily take, you know, 20 hours to solve. Um, so that's not, from my experience, purely what they're there for. I've used AWS support for general things where I'm asking a, a general question about a service that maybe I couldn't find documentation on online uh, or a service increase or anything that is on AWS's side that I need more insight into. And so, for instance, when you actually store things on AWS, sometimes it's not actually stored on your account. It's associated with your account, but it's actually stored outside. Like you can't see it inside of your console. And so you're still going to be billed for it. Uh, it still exists somewhere, but you just can't see it. And so in situations like that, the only thing that you can do is actually reach out to the AWS support because uh, in that case, you're not asking a question. You're trying to understand your own usage, but you can't actually see what's where it's coming from or what it's, what the total storage is. And there's sometimes just missing functionality, right? And so if you're trying to figure out how much is my how how much is my storage cost for this thing, uh, you know, that might be an AWS support question. They could easily point you to, for instance, their billing service or something like that. But constantly AWS is rolling out thousands of service improvements or little uh, little iterations on already existing products. And so a lot of times they they actually come out with things where it may actually already exist as a service or exactly what you need. And they'll just point you there. Um, however, if you're looking for development support, if you're looking for uh, almost like consulting, then you, you kind of have to take it for what it is. And AWS support would not fill that need. And so in those cases, I would recommend people contacting companies like Serverless Guru, for instance, uh, that actually does cloud and serverless uh, consulting specifically for AWS or another one of the partners, because they're going to be able to not only answer that question where you say, hey, I was doing XYZ using this thing and this thing and trying to connect them and I'm getting this error message, they'll be able to use their, you know, four years, five years of experience and working with so many clients and seeing these things to easily answer you. And then you can do a real ROI uh, analysis and breakdown of when it comes to the business value and when it comes to having your developers, uh, you know, make sure that they're productive and making sure obviously that the business isn't using so many expenses in a direction that could be used otherwise, right? Like if I told you, uh, you know, imagine uh, I gave you $5 and you could turn that into $100, right? Um, then you would want to do that, right? You wouldn't want to use $100. If I, if you could do it for five, don't do it for 100, right? If it's the same quality, it's the same level of detail, if there's the same downstream benefits, etc. And then if it's not, then you can weigh those pros and cons and figure that out. And and so my experience, I, I would always lean towards going to a consulting company whenever you have a new team that's moving to AWS and they need to have dedicated assistance, right? So that would be, uh, and I'm going on a rant here, but that, that would be like training, for instance, right? So if your team is starting to pick up new services and they're trying to, potentially they've learned about a new architecture, they want to validate if it's going to work for their exact context, this consulting company could put together that pattern. And we've done this for many clients. Uh, so speaking from experience, you know, we can put that, that, uh, pattern together and actually develop it in, in like 20 hours and it'll be right and it'll be with best practices and you won't have to throw it away versus if you did it from scratch and we know from experience we're actually building it initially with serverless guru when we first started working with clients 
that could easily take 160 hours to build. And so when we're able to do it in 20 hours versus 160 hours, then you work in the hourly rates of your developers and also the potential that they might, they may go down the wrong path. They may see the things that they may see things that we don't see. Um, and you know, and that can be good, but it can also be really bad, especially when you have deadlines. Um, in those scenarios, that's where having a consulting company that you trust and making sure that they're part of the process, adding them into the meetings. And if the developers have any questions, making sure there's a dedicated Slack channel or some other communication mean, uh, medium so that the developers can always feel uh, unblocked. And then once you're at that level, eventually it rubs off on the developers. And so it's not just a matter of a short-term gain. It's actually a long-term strategy because not only are you making the right decision the first time and evaluating it based on serverless or cloud uh, consultants who's been doing it for a long time, but then you know also that as you keep going, your developers are going to be able to see the right way of doing it and they're going to learn from the right way of doing it. And then they're going to share that with their other team members. And you'll see this ripple effect throughout your entire organization. And I think that that's the most powerful part. And that's the hardest to quantify. But when a customer, when we work with clients that actually understand that piece, they really push and prioritize not only us building the solution out or, or helping on that front, but making sure that we always are giving back to their team and making sure that they feel empowered. And so that's probably like the one pillar of serverless guru that I'm the most excited about and uh, I get the most joy out of is actually seeing a team going into a company that's never worked with the serverless framework or serverless development at all. And then showing them how to, you know, 30 developers, showing them how to go from point A to point, you know, Z and go through that whole process, build up the patterns, do the training, give the support, be there on Slack, communicate with them, help validate the architecture decisions, work with the leadership to validate the direction. Uh, and you get to see this whole transition happen. And then at some point, you know, what's really amazing to watch is eventually that team stops messaging, right? Because now they feel confident enough in the patterns and in the training and all the different resources and the way that you've kind of uh, rubbed off the, the way to search and actually go about cloud development, that they are uh, self-empowered and able to do all this uh, by themselves. And that's something that, you know, is sort of out of the scope of your general AWS support interaction in that way, uh, from what I've seen, correct? Yeah, totally. That's, I mean, that's, that is like a whole other spectrum. And AWS has things they offer, but, you know, I can guarantee that, like, speaking from my side, uh, you know, the type of, uh, the type of, the level of detail and quality that we try to hit a serverless guru uh, that can be very hard to replicate uh, with other consulting companies and even with AWS. I feel very confident in my ability and the team's ability. Yeah, and definitely with AWS, you know, that support person you're talking to probably has at least 10 other accounts or just messages that very moment in that day that they have to sort of field. Uh, so you're not able to get that sort of dedicated one-on-one -on -one relationship and one-on-one -on -one attention that uh, that you need. And if you don't have the expertise or the sort of the fire in your own company in order to really grind down and learn everything yourself. A consulting company could be a better option than just only relying on AWS support. So I have, I have one more question for you, Ryan. And, you know, it may be a bit more of a two-part question. And that is, you know, we're going to get down in the dirt a little bit. So the Seattle Times had a very interesting situation. And they talk about how they were getting 7 million of uh, 7 million requests on their website a month. I did the math. That's about 233,000 a day. 
how do you build something in serverless that can handle that? How did they build it? Um, could they have used serverless more in order to handle a load like that? Um, how do you even approach a problem that massive? Yeah, so I, I think that the idea of what you just did, where you broke it down into a day by day, I would I would go even further. I would break it down into hours and minutes, and then uh, and then seconds. So the the goal there would be to identify how many requests per second are you actually uh, using. Uh, right now, I can speak that uh, you know serverless guru is working uh, internally on developing what may turn into a white paper around actually hitting very high requests per second. So we're talking, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 requests per second using serverless. And what does that architecture look like? Where are the trade-offs? Where does the cost uh, really spike up in that architecture? And can it work, right? Um, so we're working on that currently. So some things that we've learned is that, yeah, serverless can actually work for this. Um, however, your your level of understanding of, uh, of serverless goes up quite a bit at that point. So this is definitely a much more advanced topic. And this is where I would not I would not typically tell people to do this unless they were working with uh, consultants or there's a pattern already established and a whole bunch of videos and articles. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast episode in a year from now or two years from now, uh, or maybe even six months from now, maybe that stuff already exists. Maybe Serverless Guru actually has that content already out there that you can search for. Um, but I, I would kind of, I would circle back to, to one important note, which is, uh, business value. So like one thing that we do at Serverless Guru, um, we're a serverless consulting company, very heavily niched into like the specific area, uh, even with AWS as well. And what we often will like tell customers, uh, and clients is that serverless is one solution, but it's not the end all be all. And, you know, the most important thing is that it makes sense for what your business is trying to accomplish. And sometimes uh, clients and companies in general, they they hear about something, they hear about serverless, they hear about Kubernetes, and they don't actually know, they don't actually have people in-house, and then they just make an initiative. Uh, they haven't evaluated and gone through that whole process that we talked about before of researching to actually make sure that it'll work for their use case. And then they'll start making these decisions, and sometimes they have to roll back to something different. Um, and, and I think that that's a really important note. So... But for Seattle Times, in their specific scenario, I think it's fine in the fact that they used uh, AWS EC2 instances to host their website. I believe that the application stack they're using is actually much more nuanced with using with serverless. You can do it. Uh, I believe that they're using the LAMP stack, which involves PHP. And PHP traditionally doesn't run on like a uh, independent backend server uh, like that, separated from the actual front-end code. That's good to know. Um, and so, but there are integrations that people have built with AWS Lambda where you can't actually run a PHP function. So they, there is a scenario where they could scrape out their PHP, use this integration, work it in with AWS Lambda. In my opinion, you know, at some point, you know, you're using a little bit too much duct tape. So if you start questioning, like, and we do this a lot internally at Serverless Guru is like the second that we start going, Oh, hey, it's been five minutes and I'm really started. I, I can't even put words on paper. Um, at that point, you should really just stop and reevaluate, like, should we be doing this or not? Um, and so I would say that if you evaluate what I just said, this PHP integration with AWS Lambda scraping out out of your front end code, and you start going, ah, this feels really bad, then maybe not, maybe not, right? So, but if you've already moved to AWS, and you already have it running, or you have the ability where your existing website is already operational, and you want to think even bigger, if you want to think more into the future and long term, 
I would say maybe even make the transition from moving from PHP to something like Node.js because Node.js is uh, the most supported uh, AWS Lambda runtime. And so you can take that PHP code that was running your backend API requests. You can rewrite it inside of Node.js, put it onto an AWS Lambda function. You'll have the best documentation, the best support, uh, because most documentation and most of the documentation that we write for serverless guru is with Node.js. And you'll be able to use that, uh, duplicate or replicate the PHP code that you've already written and launch it that way. However, there's another big asterisk there where some people listening may go, oh, hey, Ryan, I hear what you're saying, but also my code base is like hundreds of thousands of lines of PHP. Then no, it's still, maybe that's not a good decision, right? So always think about it in your context and, and think about like, is this what we're supposed to, like, it, are we getting away from the service outages of our, our fully managed provider? Or are we trying to set ourselves up for all this future sustained, uh, stability, right? And if the, the answer is like, we just need to make this, the outages stop, then you shouldn't be trying to go through and refactor your code base and optimize it at this point. You should be focused on just getting that part done because that's what you're, that's what's affecting your users the most. And then once you have that done, once you've made that migration, then this might be a second phase of uh, Seattle Times progression with AWS. They started using serverless to do uh, image processing, uh, which is amazing. And they probably noticed already the benefits of using serverless. I think they mentioned that uh, you know it's increased the, pr- the productivity of their team as well as the performance of their app. Um, just be just because like when they dropped one image into let's say this S3 bucket, it then triggered off uh, five or six different Lambda functions that were all processing that image in parallel. And so that's a really big benefit of serverless that you get right out of the box without any configuration, pretty much. And they're able to see the benefits. They're understanding now of how cloud and all these things work. They're building up that team uh, confidence and they've already made the migration. They're already there. And then now at this point, now I would actually recommend looking at the part that I talked about before. Is this PHP code? Is running a server? Is worrying about scaling? Is having an operations team? Look, how much do the operations team make, you know, per year? And I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of, you know, cutting out people inside of your company, but I think it's a real, you know, take, take the real perspective of, you know, all the, every expense that you have is real dollar money. And so if you can look at the raw cost of the resources, the productivity losses of your team, if there's an issue, how long did it take to resolve? And what does that look like? How many meetings do you have to schedule to make a new feature? How many meetings do you have to schedule when something breaks on the operation side? How many people are waiting for alerts on the weekend because your server may not scale properly? Evaluate all those different price points and then go, oh shit, we're losing, uh, excuse me, <laughs> we're losing, you know, a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you know, per month, depending on the scale of the company. And then now you can then say, okay, well, now this initiative is even more important because that $100,000 a month is, you know, what, $1.2 million a year or five plus million dollars every five years. And so now by not making that switch, you're actually losing, uh, you know, five million over five years. And I think when that is fully understood, then they're ready to make that move to serverless. And so I think for now, this solved exactly what they were looking for. Um, they were able to move it over to, uh, to AWS, able to take advantage of serverless where it makes sense, but keep the focus on the, the, the users and and their customers and then now they can start optimizing internally and i think that that's where it gets really interesting and i think what you said can be you know very daunting and very challenging for an organization to try to implement especially you know if you've been around for over 100 years and you and maybe you're even a transnational corporation um, and you have a lot of different players 
but being able to, you know, sort of create a long-term plan of how could serverless impact our business, not just in the moment or next quarter, but in the next one, five, 10, 20 years, maybe. Because a lot of people I know we've talked to, that's sort of their mindset when they're aggressively thinking of transitioning to serverless. They're like, we want to plan for the next 200 years some, in some cases. And it's like, wow, what an incredible goal to have as an organization. But, you know, not dare I say that the uh, one thing the serverless is offering in this instance is the ability to re-understand your organization as something that could have beneficial downstream effects one, five, 10 years plus. And not a lot of business decisions allow you to have that sort of impact. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree. So Ryan, before we wrap up, is there anything else you would like to say? Or if people were interested in hearing more of your thoughts, is there an easy way for them to get a hold of you or listen to what you have to say? Yeah, definitely. So uh, we have two podcasts that we're doing currently. The one that you're listening to right now is the Serverless Economics Podcast. Josh will probably give a bit more information about that in a minute. Uh, then we also have the Talking Serverless podcast, uh, where both Josh and I actually sit down with guests and we talk about what they are doing in the serverless space, what their thoughts are. And I usually try to gear my questions when I'm doing those interviews towards like, how does serverless affect the company? Like, how did the teams change? What challenges do you face as an organization? And, you know, just recently we've talked to a few people, uh, the VP of cloud research at Trend Micro a senior platform engineer that's been a programmer for 10 plus years in the industry uh, from Serverless Inc. And we've also talked to a a person who's been a technical director at all, like um, not all the major brands, but at uh, at least like 15, 20 different major brands like Aston Martin, um, Nike, uh, MasterCard, all those things. And so they all have like really unique perspectives about serverless and about software development and also just how technology works. And yeah, and if you're interested in hearing some of the things that I talked about during this, uh, definitely watch those episodes. If you want to be a guest, then definitely hit us up. And also, if you're looking for some of the areas that we just talked about, if some of the things that we said jumped out to you and you're like, oh, man, this is what we're struggling with right now. There's there's not this there's not just a one one size fits all type of consulting. Right. So the type of consulting that we also do is just evaluation of direction as well. Right. So we can do. We can do everything from pattern development to evaluating the direction of where you're going to saying, hey, this is a good idea. Hey, this isn't a good idea. Um, and also building out uh, certain implementations or doing training from there. So it's really an, an idea where like if anything that we said sounds like you might be dealing with that coming up in the future, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to us. We're happy to get on a call, talk through what those decisions may be and what they could look like based on our experience doing this for clients of this equal size to you. Uh, and then we can recommend direction based on that. So, yeah. Definitely. And also add no strings attached. Um, this is just something that we always offer to anyone. So I just want to say thank you, Ryan, for taking time out of your busy day to jump on and, uh, you know, be the sounding board for these case studies. And I want to thank every all the listeners right now of the Serverless Economics Podcast. You know, once again, I'm Josh Proto. This is Ryan Jones and brought to you by Serverless Guru, your trusted serverless partner. And if you'd like to know more about the show, or to subscribe, you can check it out on Anchor FM slash serverless-economics. All this will also be in the podcast notes. And please feel free, if you liked the episode, to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. All that really helps us and helps the podcast and just helps us get the message out to 
many different companies on how they could be saving money or just improving their organizations using serverless. So thank you once again. And this is Serverless Economics signing off.